Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. But I'm telling you now, and not and I may be now, I didn't want to say this in front of him, but he will go right to the very top, right to the very top. I'm pleased I managed to not be a dud that made, it, made him sound like he was right at the time. Welcome back to The Gagan Pod. I'm James Lawrence, a producer here at Optus Sport, and today we've got a special bonus episode. We sat down with Everton manager and Chelsea legend Frank Lampard to discuss his wild start to life as a gaffer. From guiding Derby to the Championship playoff final, to building a Chelsea squad capable of winning the Champions League, to his current plans at Everton, Lampard tells us all about his managerial journey so far, including the appointments, his well-publicized sacking at Stamford Bridge, his famous touchline blow-up with Jurgen Klopp, and tells us why the Toffees' come-from-behind victory against Crystal Palace last season was one of the greatest nights of his footballing career. Here is our full chat with Frank Lampard. So yeah, mate, pleasure to have you and Everton here in Australia. I really wanted to delve into Frank Lampard, the manager. Uh, at what point in your playing career did you feel like management was for you? Um, when I reached my 30s, I'd say. Um, in your 20s, you're pretty carefree. You don't even think about post-football career, playing career. And then as I reached 30, I started to sort of analyse more my managers, um, think about my teammates, take that sort of more experience role within whatever my teams at the time. So as I left Chelsea at I think, 34, went to Manchester City, experienced another team, another ownership, another manager, another uh, club, and then to New York. And all these different experiences kind of made me much more interested in, in what I was going to do next and seeing different ways of how people work and the effects that they have. So from that point, I, uh, I decided I wanted to try. I wanted some time off at the end of my playing career just purely because it's so relentless for, for 20 years or whatever. Um, and then I started to sort of do my coaching badges. But yeah, I, I understood probably in my 30s that it was something I was interested in. Do you look back and think of any behaviours you had of, as a player and think that that put you in good stead as a manager? Yeah, I, I think I, uh, I grew up in a footballing family. My, my, my father played for West Ham for a long time. So I kind of grew up with a lot of, sort of um, ethics around football, you know, work ethic and training, uh, trying to get the best out of myself through the things I did on the training pitch, even as a young boy. So I carried them through my career and I, and I think I... I Looking back, I sort of maximised a lot of the parts of my game. Things that I, was, I ended up being good at as a professional were things I worked on relentlessly behind the scenes. And I think those ethics carry on through for everything, you know, into the modern day. So I think as a manager, I try and push that side of it for the individuals and for the team. The harder we work, the harder we focus in the right direction, then you're going to improve. For me, that's a, that's a pretty simple fact. And then there are a lot of details within that that you learn on the job. You learn as you go, dealing with people on and off the pitch, uh, challenges, problems, solutions you've got to find um, along the way. Um, and those things you can't uh, fully understand until you start doing the job and, and, and live them in real life. 
So do you look back and think of anything you may have taken from the likes of Jose or, or Carlo or any of the managers in your career that you think about and try to use now? Maybe the mind games? Yeah, yeah, sure. I think my, mind games is an interesting way to put it because I think the, the biggest things I remember from my better managers um, or the ones I had better relationships with were, were more the personal touches and how I felt about them rather than the, the tactics, for instance, that they gave me. I think in, a, in elite sport, um, individually, once you get to this level, there's a certain amount of you that should control yourself on the pitch in certain things you do. But the manager's job then is to try and get the person and create the person and get them feeling good and feeling in a, in, in a good direction. And so managers like particularly probably Jose and Carlo, um, Gus Hiddink for a short time, but it was another one that, that gave me um, a really good feeling, a good direction, a good support, someone that I felt the manager trusted me. And once I felt that, um, I felt that that really helped my game. So when I became a manager, I tried to sort of replicate those traits in my own style because it's hard to be Jose, it's hard to be Carlo. They're very particular in their ways. But if I can support my players and give them that, that, that touch and that feeling of trust, then I think that's, that's a big part of my job. What about some of the things from managers you've had that you thought, I'm definitely not going to be like that? Because obviously you probably grew up playing in a very different generation to, yeah. to now, right? Is there anything you look back and think, wow, I would never have done that or never would have? I mean, don't have to name any no. names, but yeah. yeah, any like behaviours where you thought, no. Nah. Yeah, I think so. There's, a, there's a, a few occasions in my career where um, maybe I've had a manager that hasn't been truly honest with you in a situation and probably says something that, that you, you kind of understand pretty quickly is not the truth. I suppose when you become manager, you understand why managers have to go that route. But I think really in sometimes the hard conversations about I had in an honest way. So I think I had some of those and didn't really appreciate them at the time looking back. But I, I kind of understand them a bit more now, but it just wouldn't be the way that I would want to go. And then it, probably it's, it's more, again, I, I keep coming back to relationships, but it's more a manager that's that you feel distant to and no connection. Um, that's kind of like, it's not, a, it's not a ding moment where you realize that you're not happy with something they're doing on a training day, for instance. It's sometimes just within time, you kind of have this sort of uh, lack of communication. And I think that can always be a, a difficult one as a, as a player. So I had some of those moments with different managers for, for whatever reason, and they were all very talented managers and they'll have their own ways. But in my feeling was that those uh, personal interactions were not, were not spot on for me. And so I, I try, as I say, in my own way. And you don't always get it right. I think managing is a lot about um, succeeding and failing, succeeding and failing and learning and getting better um, with all those interactions. So I don't sit here and kind of go, he was great, he was bad, he was great. It was, it's, there's, there's lots of things to it. And again, I come back to the thing about being authentic. It has to be you. It has to be real. Otherwise, I think the players will see through that. Did you pick that up, you think, from the start, like when you were at Derby? Or is that something you think you've gotten better with as as the years have gone on? Um, I think I've got better with it and I think you continue to get better with it because every football management brings you uh, probably about 50 challenges a day. They may be tiny, they may be bigger, they may be really, really important ones. And there's no way you can get them all right. So I think when I came in at Derby, I had this vision of what would, what would be me as the, the, the best manager I could be. And then straight away you get tested and you have to find different solutions. So sometimes you change your tact. I remember at Derby asking, the, telling the players that because I was recently retired as such, that they could all come and speak to me anytime, come whenever you want, because that's uh, 
you know, I'm open, I understand, I was a player very recently. Um, and then from then on, everyone knocked on my door every two seconds, you know, why they're not playing and all these, all these things. And I kind of wanted to correct it a little bit and go, no, come and see me when you've got a real reason. And the real reason needs to be, I'm training so well, I really deserve to be in a team, but it has to be pretty factual and not just, I want to play. So I think, you know, those messages to the players, how they feel that they can come back to you, are things that in, in the early days of Derby, I probably look back and go, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that now. But then there are quite a lot of things I did at Derby with my sort of youthful inexperience in a way that you hang on to because some of those things are right and it's, it's a little bit trial and error. Yeah, what, what are those things? Because I was going to ask you about your time in Derby. You didn't have much of a break. It was only a year and a bit out of playing, right? Because I think you finished up in New York. Did you still have a lot of offers to play or were you set on retiring, going into coaching? Um, I, w I, was, I was happy to retire. I had a few offers off the back of New York. Um, but I, mentally, I was in a position to retire myself, which is a good place to be. I really appreciated my career. It was physically as well, probably, of 38, 39 nearly. And I didn't, I didn't really feel like taking on another playing challenge because at that point, if I was playing, I wanted to be the best to make a difference. And I was at that point where I wasn't sure I wanted to, to, to be there. So um, I, was, I was pretty clear then that I wanted to manage. And that was a good thing. So happily retired is a good thing because you don't pine for the, the, the training every day or games every Saturday. I actually enjoyed not having that for a year. And that year gave me family time, getting out, doing some different things that I'd never had the opportunity to do. And then as the time came before, just as I got the Derby job, it was a surprise. I didn't expect it at that point. I thought it would come a bit later. But when the opportunity came, I, I felt pretty quickly that I was ready. But it's a big leap of faith because your first job, you kind of walk through the door and you think you have an idea of what you want to say to the players or do, and all of a sudden you're hit with 25 new faces of players staring at you, you know, uh, people asking you questions about how you want to plan pre-season and all these things, and it's a really quick learning curve at that point. What was the biggest shock when you first took the job? Because I was going to ask whether the coaching gig came as a surprise and you already answered the question. Like, what was the biggest shock in that first year at Derby? Um, well, many, many ones. I mean, the, the fact that it was a surprise was that the, the reason I got the Derby job was through my, my uncle, Harry Redknapp, the relationship with Mel Morris as the owner of Derby. They, their manager left. He was looking at options and he said, have a conversation with Frank. So we had like probably about a two-hour conversation that ended up in me getting the job. And so the, the interview itself was surreal. It was very kind of um, uh, relaxed. It wasn't a formal, formal interview. It was a football chat. Um, so when I actually then decided to take the job, I, I kind of deliberated over it for a good day or so with my wife if it was the right time for me. Um, so when I went in, I probably the, the surprise was probably the, the, the speed of it. And as I say, a lot of the, uh, the, the quick planning that I had to do, you know, without much time and without any experience of doing it. So with Derby, it was basically um, a squad that was pretty old. It was an old squad. In, in, I think we were the oldest squad in all the, all the, all the leagues in England, bar one team. Um, and my idea, my philosophy, as they say, was to have a team full of energy and legs and you know, high pressing and all these things. And the squad didn't align to that uh, on paper. Um, but then we had no money. <laughs> we had a lack of funds. It's to, a lot to ask of Ashley to, Cole to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so he came later on. But, but it was the, the lack of funds. But that, those challenges are, are, are probably every job in football at a higher level gives you a version of that. This, the version at Derby was 
Um, we had one player who was the, the best player in the championship the year before, Vidra, who had to be sold to, to release a few funds to be able to bring in a few players and, and help us cha change the, the style of the team. So from counter-attacking team, I wanted to move us up the pitch. So I think the surprise was how quickly you had to get to work and try and bring in players on loan to, to buy what recruitment looks like. I'd never been on that side of the fence practically at all. That had just happened, I just played. So when you're actually in the middle of those conversations, it becomes uh, a lot of things surprise you in that process. And you did have a really good season. I actually went back and I looked at the squad list for that playoff final. And with respect to the Derby team, the Villa team was a really good team. I think they've still got some really good Premier League players there. How do you reflect... I mean, you had the win over Leeds, obviously, the week before. How do you reflect on that first season in charge? And at the time, how did you reflect on it? It was difficult because uh, the Championship is such a grind of a, of a, of a league. Probably one of the hardest leagues, I think, to, to get out of because it's so many games... Uh, a variation of styles, but a really, really, really big physicality to a lot of the teams there. So when you play Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, so you play, then you travel down to play, I don't know, Millwall, who are physical, long balls, you go again, and, and then the next game, another type of style, and you, you take that through the season. There are times within the year where you kind of, not, not struggling, but as a squad, you get some bad results. There's some, we had some younger players, we had the older ones, you know, and you're trying to put things together whilst trying to get in the playoff positions. So whilst in real life, um, it's very challenging and that's the job. When I re reflect back on it, I think it was a really successful season because um, even though we had players like Mason Mount, Fikayo Tomori, Harry Wilson, who are now a pretty household name-ish, some of them, particularly Mason, they were 19 years of age. So it was their first real seasons in the championship, they had full seasons of, of, at the level we were re requiring. Um, so. We, that those things, when I look back, are something that I'm pretty proud of, that we managed to get through that tough year, learn a lot, beat Leeds, who were probably the strongest team in the league that year, bar maybe, I think, Norwich and Sheffield United got promoted, but Leeds had been there for a long time, had this, you know, Bielsa style. So we were really unfancied against them in the semi-final. The, the, the semi-final was one of the, the, the best footballing days of my career, um, purely because of the fact that we were such underdogs and what we managed to achieve in terms of winning that game. And then the final, I agree with you, that Aston Villa now, you look at the team they had and it's Jack Grealish and McGinn and Mings and Tammy Abraham was up top for them, all these players. And I'm just disappointed that we didn't get closer to winning that game. That's my only reflection on, on the season. Really proud of what we did as, as a club, but disappointed for a lot of people at the club, particularly the fans and the owner who had supported me a lot at the time, that I didn't manage to get them up to the, or that we didn't manage to get to the Premier League. So walk me through the timeline from that player, playoff loss to Derby, sorry, to the moment Chelsea came knocking on the door and you ended up back at Chelsea. I can't remember it completely to give you like a complete rundown, but when we lost the playoff final, I remember after the playoff final there were a lot of um, news, rumours of, of Chelsea manager changing, Maurizio Sarri leaving there, and my name was thrown in the hat. Um, because of uh, probably the, the relatively successful season. We'd just played in a playoff final. My clear link to Chelsea from my playing days. But at that point, I wasn't aware of anything. And, and I've got close connections to Chelsea, so I probably would have been aware if I had to be aware, if you know what I mean. Someone told you. Yeah, someone would have said. So that, that was quiet. But as, the, as we went through the month of June, um, I went away on some holidays in Europe with my family. And uh, at that point... Um, Chelsea made a, an approach to Derby and the, the Derby owner Mel Morris was very, 
very, very good about it from my point of view. He rang me and said, Frank, if this is your, your dream because it's Chelsea, then you know, I'm not going to stand in your way. Um, and then I had conversations with Chelsea, um, which, which, looking back, were always going to be a formality. You know, as much as I love my time at Derby and I'm so thankful to them, the Chelsea job was clearly one that would hold a lot for me. So those conversations went through June and July, and then, it, then these things happened really quickly at that point. And then before you know it, you're, you're signing as Chelsea manager, and it feels like a little bit of a dream in a sense because you know I, I didn't expect the job to come at that point, but at that point it came, and so uh, that was like a very Probably a surreal month for me, that month of June, going into getting a job. Yeah, because I feel like you're not someone that would hesitate to take that sort of role. But was it emotional, given it was Chelsea? Um, I'm, I'm quite a, what's the word, strategic thinker. You know, like I, I, wasn't, I, w I wouldn't have been completely set on emotion. Um, it was great for the emotion. Don't get me wrong, it's, it was my club. I still have my house in Chelsea. I live sort of half a mile from their, their stadium. And um, so those parts of it were, were there, but I also um, was very aware of lots of things. And, and the main things were probably the, the perception of me getting that job after one year at Derby, because that's not the norm. I was completely understanding of that. So people would link it to my playing career, which was something that was always going to be challenging for me, I felt, from the beginning. Um, I think it was just reality. I think as it went on and I started to do the job, at times it could be frustrating because if people... I think decide on that fact with you as you go into the job. Uh, he's got it too early. Every time something happens, they'll, they'll relate back to that. He's got it too early. Of course they were going to lose one game. You know, like those, those things are there. So you have to kind of shut your ears to that. And then I just kind of thought more practically about um, what the job was. Now, we had a transfer ban. Eden Hazard was just about to leave. Uh, Morata was the other number nine that we had. He left. Um, and... I knew that there were good academy players, worked with Mason and Fakayo. Um, but I also knew that what Chelsea expect year on year is hard to reach with academy players and losing the best player, um, who was so um, prolific in goals and assists for the team. So we had to try and f find solutions to that. So I think I got a little bit of a... Um, I think I, I, it probably did me a little bit of a favour in the fact that people saw that and gave me a little bit, OK, well, young players, let's give them a bit more time than maybe they would do. But I think the reality is once that season kicks in, Chelsea are expected to be there. And um, so we had to... I, I, knew, I felt that I would have to fight against that a little bit. But I have to say, when I look back on it and reflect, that first year was an amazing ride because we, even with probably four or five academy youngsters that had probably played in the Championship before that year, we managed to get to the target, which was... Which was questionable when at the start of that year to make Champions League football for the following year and we managed to get there but going in you, you, you're unaware of something but you always will be with a job every job is a, is a risk factor you're a risk for them they're a risk for you to whatever degree so I was aware of all the risks and I, and I decided that it was, a, it was something I wanted to take on Was there a minimum expectation with the board when you took the job or was it let's just see how this goes because like you said Hazard sold the transfer ban it's, it's a tough situation to go into for any manager right? let alone someone who's been a year was extra leeway? What was the conversations about where the board expected you to take the club? The, the conversations were an expectancy that it would be a tougher year than, than normal. Um, I remember one specific conversation about, well, let's make sure we don't get relegated, which was, which was very tongue-in-cheek. But it, it was quite nice to hear that, because at least I had heard that, that said um, going in, because we all understood it would look different. Um, but in reality, and the, the board would want to get into the Champions League for the next season, because that's where they expect Chelsea to be. And I was aware of that going in. So I think, yeah, there, there was a difference of, of expectation, but it's, it's his football. So once you start the season, 
and you get on a roll. We had a good run in October or something. We won I think, six or seven on the bounce. And at that point, all those kind of ifs and buts and maybes of where you might end up, people go, no, no, we're going to be here. And that's, everyone jumps on that. So you set yourself a bit of a problem and you try to hang on to it in different ways. So, you know, it was, um, there was an understanding, but Chelsea will always be a club that expects for when I was there, for when Tuchel was there and our grand Potter there, there would be this big expectation because the club is huge. Yeah, because I feel like it was a, oh, a hesitancy, but there was optimism, right, because of all the young players. And then obviously you get off to the start, you did at United. How did you kind of navigate the ups and downs? Because there's overreactions, underreactions in football. After that first game, how did you kind of just manage the expectations in your own head? After the first game, it was, it was a really difficult one for me because we played pretty well. And it sounds crazy after a 4-0 defeat at Manchester, but uh, we, we, can, we controlled a lot. They controlled. We, had, we were very competitive in the first half, and they scored a penalty, I think, in the first half. So at half-time, you go, well, we're playing OK here, get back in the game. And then they counter-attacked, and they scored two in the space of two minutes or something. It was 3-0. And then, you know, the game's done, and you end up with what you get. But our performance was, was, uh, was OK. I couldn't say that to, to the press much. It would have made me look a bit silly, because people don't want to hear that. But I knew it was OK. And then we went to play Liverpool in the Super Cup on the, on the, in the midweek, on the Wednesday, the Wednesday. And we played really well. And we competed and we could have won the game. We went through extra time. We lost on penalties. So at that point, I had, I had a real belief in what we wanted to do there. And um, the, the players that were there, the senior players that were there, albeit without Hazard, we still had some good senior players, some very good senior players. Um, and the young players I had a lot of belief in. So I, I, I wasn't concerned. I just kind of started to get to work on that and say, well, what, what could excite Chelsea fans about this team? A big part of it would have to be the younger players because fans love academy players coming through and they bring this real energy into a group. So I wanted to focus on that and think, what can I do here that's going to be a bit lasting for the club? Um, but I do need results. So the season was all about that. It was always trying to find that balance of the experienced players and then the younger players and keep blood in them, but also keep trying to get results. And, and looking back, I think we did, we did pretty well with that. We, there were a few moments in the year where we, where we lost a game or two. I think it's normal in the Premier League with where we were at. But we generally bounced back, had some big results against big teams, against uh, just off the top of my head, we beat Tottenham and Arsenal that year, which are big results for, for a Chelsea manager. Uh, we beat Liverpool in the FA Cup, we beat Manchester City in the league in COVID times in a really important period for us. So there were, there were lots of small achievements in terms of results and there were, I think, some big achievements in terms of the development of players that now we see that are really prominent players at Chelsea when you look at Mason Mount and, and Rhys James and others. Do you remember a game where you were like, you know, you looked at the likes of Rhys and Mason and Fikayo and Tammy and were like, we'll be right here, these guys are... They're top-class footballers. Was there a moment? Because that wasn't the chat going into the season. Sure, Tammy had some good seasons in the Championship and Mason as well. But do you remember when the penny dropped for you or the players even? Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure on the players, but um, I remember pre-season giving Tammy the number nine shirt. And it was a big deal because the number nine shirt's been pretty coveted at Chelsea for good and for bad. Some people say it's a, it's a curse. And but Tammy was like, yeah, give it to me. That, that great youthfulness that's like, I'm not scared of anything. Mason's like that all the time. Reese, I knew his quality and he was injured early season, but I knew he would come if Ikayo had had a year at Derby. So I had these real close relationships with them all. The game I remember early in the season was we went to Ajax in the Champions League and we won 1-0 uh, against a really strong Ajax team who'd made the, the semis the year before. Um, and I just saw boys grow into men in, in a sense of big stadium, big, big game, big team against us. 
and it wasn't the most beautiful game, but tactically we were spot on. The work ethic of the team and the belief in the dressing room after the game. And at that point, I felt really sure that those boys would go and have their, their really good careers in their own ways. And obviously, Tammy and Fakaya have moved on to, to pastures new for, for big moves. Um, and I also felt that that season we would have an opportunity because there was a sort of togetherness about the group that those young boys had brought to everyone. Did... Did you speak to Eden before he'd left? Or had would there been any conversation between him going to Madrid and you starting no, at Chelsea? He, he was gone by the time I came. I, I don't know, that, as I say, the dates when it was absolutely confirmed, but it was a move that was, that was always going to happen. I think he had a year left on his contract. It was a big deal you know, for a player of a year left on his contract. The, the number was huge because he's an amazing player. So that, that was done. and that was At that point, it was just how can we um, find the goals and assists that Eden had brought to the club in different ways, from different positions, and maybe make the team look different. I wanted us to be more aggressive off the ball um, and certain style of, of how we play with the ball. Because I'd watched Chelsea, because I'm a you know, Chelsea man at that point. I've been watching them whilst at Derby. So I already had a sort of a real insight into how I wanted to change them. And again, a lot of that would have been with the energy of the, the, the young players that were coming in. So you felt like as you were managing Derby while you were watching Chelsea, you were just thinking about what you'd, what you'd do differently? Um, but I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it that way because the job, you're so focused on Derby. But I, I specifically remember watching Chelsea games. It's, it's normal because of some of those players I play with, I'd, I turned up at Chelsea and uh, Williams there, Aspilicueta's there, you know, it had been my team for 13 years. You don't lose that bond. So whilst I was it, specifically remember it, sitting in Derby watching the, the Carabao Cup final when Kepa didn't want to come off, you know, this game. And I watched, it, I watched those as a, as a fan as such. Um, but whilst you're analysing them, you're getting an, an understanding of... Uh, of, of the game and, and what direction they're going in. And I also had a really good understanding of what Chelsea fans want. And, um, and I felt that I could give them something that they wanted, which was a, a fast-paced game in terms of uh, energy off the ball uh, and speed on the ball. And, and when you look at the, the, the base stats of our first season, we performed really well. You know, all our XG, all our things that are comparable, things you can't talk about too much in the press, we were actually competing right at the top of the league. We came fourth because we weren't clinical enough in our own box, uh, in their box, and sometimes in our own box we were conceding goals we shouldn't have done. But in terms of our general play, there were a lot of, lot of good things that we, we could see clearly in that first year. So what was your favourite moment about that first year? Favourite game? Um, well, be beating Tottenham and Arsenal was a, away from home. As a Chelsea manager, it was a, was a big deal. I remember those games because I understand what they mean for the fans. We went to Tottenham, beat them 2-0 and we beat them really, um, really well. I changed the system. We played three at the back. We had all the possession. We should have won one more. Um, but I think one that stands out for me was probably Manchester United in the FA Cup semi-final. It was a game where probably slightly underdogs going to Wembley uh, against a strong Man United team. We won 3-1 and it was... It was a really, really good team performance. So I think at that point, we were then going on to the FA Cup final. We obviously lost the final. But um, I remember being really proud of, of the team that day. So uh, you get just into the Champions League final. Obviously, it's a restricted budget. And this time, you've, you get the freedom to, to target a few players. I think Mendy came in and then Havertz. Did, how much involvement did you have at the time with the signings or did because you would know how Chelsea works from your playing days was it different as a manager or how was the process of recruiting when you were able to yeah I mean I, I knew the club well I didn't know that recruitment process as such because that's very much a separate from players 
So um, when we came to that summer, we'd had all year with a band to look at where we wanted to go forward. Conversation was very joined up at that point between myself, the board, Peter Cech and his position at the time and in recruitment. So we knew the areas we wanted to strengthen in. But what I realised at that point is that when you work with a club the size of Chelsea and the structure of how Chelsea is, that you have an input as manager, but it's not the final ultimate say. That say has to be spread across different people. And that, and that was fine. So generally we had very open conversations about who we wanted to bring in. There were some targets that we missed, which I think were very were targets I really would have liked that we didn't get. I think that's probably life sometimes. Um, but players that I thought would be really like long-standing players for the club that we didn't manage to get. But then some of the players we brought in, I thought were going to be big improvements for us. And so I think they've been, uh, when you look back at it now, I think some have been really strong for the club, others not so. I think that's normal um, to, to have that kind of um, result out of recruitment. Um, but I think in, in a way they, they were all pretty good in, in a sense that the club, even though I wasn't there, managed to win the Champions League the following year. Um, so there, I think that we were trying to recruit young. Uh, we were trying to recruit players that would get better and appreciate and, get, and give the club um, years and, and, and be the club rather than older players. The only older player we recruited was Thiago Silva and he was probably the best of the lot because he's just an incredible player and an incredible person. But yeah, the recruitment process was an interesting one and I think um, it was a big learning curve for me. Yeah, so I feel like your dismissal as well from Chelsea came pretty quickly. Like, I feel like it was just a month of bad results. Like, I remember you guys being in the top four, everything going okay, and then a few bad results in maybe ninth or tenth before you were dismissed. Did, did, it, did you feel something was wrong? Well, we were, I think we were second in, in December. We, we, we beat Newcastle, I remember, and we, I think we went second. Um, and then we actually went to Everton and lost. So we lost to Everton and we lost at Wolves within three or four days. And um, there was a quick realisation then that when you're Chelsea manager and the way Chelsea's structured and its history over the last 10 or 15 years was that that's when everyone, the pressure comes. So that came very quickly. We then, went, we then won a game, drew a game, lost a game. And over that period of probably uh, maybe six weeks later into towards the end of January, um, we'd had a difficult period. Um, and I lost my job. And I wouldn't say I saw it coming. I, I, I sensed and I, I heard a lot of the, ch the chatter at the time. When you're at Chelsea, it's very commonplace, isn't it? And you try and close off to a lot of it. But I, I probably always had a sense at Chelsea that my, my, um, my role there and the timing that I was given it was probably given it with a short-term view, is my opinion, because of the transfer ban and probably because of the fact that I'd played there for 13 years and with a, a certain big element of the Chelsea fan base, it was always going to be a popular decision in a sense. Um, and I think probably I was seen because the reality is that one year at Derby doesn't normally get you the Chelsea job. So I always had a sense that it may not be something that would last forever. And I was very aware of that on the way in. And I think that was proven right in terms of when we had that tough period, the decision was made very quickly. That's, that's a real clear sense that I have of it looking back. And I'm fine with it because I had a great time there. I learned a lot. And when you become a manager, you understand quickly that um, you can't, write the story. You can't say, okay, that's it, I'm going to become manager. I might be Chelsea manager for 10 years. It's just not reality. And in fact, when you start working, and now I'm at a great club like Everton, you appreciate that every club you work at is going to be in another amazing story. Challenging, brilliant, tough, all these things. And so when Chelsea got tough, my first probably real tough period there, I lost my job. And I think it was a culmination of things. Things I reflect on and go, yeah, maybe I could have done this better in that tough period, could have reacted better because I 
um, was probably under some pressure. But I also think there were some elements that were probably, would have maybe, were always going to pan out in the way they did. It's my real feeling. Was there a game where you were like, okay, this, this could be it? Yeah, I, I, we, we, we went to Leicester and lost, which is my last league game. We, we, we won in the FA Cup after that. I lost my job the following day. And I think that was probably a game where I, I felt, you know, we'd been off the back of tough. We'd played, I think, Man City and lost, Arsenal on Boxing Day and lost. Um, they're, they're tough games, you know, for anybody. And when you're in a tough spell, they become even tougher because of what it is. And, and I think after Leicester, I could understand that the pressure was on. As you said there, I think before, the, the table moved very quickly from being second to like ninth, but the distance back to the fourth place was like three points or something. Um, so we were, my planning with the, my staff was all about the next two home games we had after Leicester. I think it was Wolves and Burnley at home. Okay, what does that look like if we win two home games, which we'd be expected to do? Possibly back in the top four, etc. Um, but I obviously didn't make it to that point. But it's, uh, it's, it's all very reflective for me now. When you lose a job, I think those first two or three months are quite hard to sort of process everything for different reasons. Once you get beyond that, I think you just understand sometimes the situation and the, the, the cutthroat business we're in, the, the privileged position you are in that you can manage a club like Chelsea and now manage Everton. It's an amazing position. Um, but sometimes, you know, these things happen. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that you, you know, you went in and you didn't expect, you know, expected a short term. Mm. Is that because you've, I guess, seen the ruthless nature of Chelsea as, as a player? Yeah. Like, why was it that you thought, okay, I'm here for short, you know, given everything you've achieved? Because um, I know the club very well. And, that, and that's not being um, disrespectful. The club has had an, an amazing model, you know, in the Roman Abramovich years, incredibly successful, possibly the most successful club in the Premier League in terms of, um, you know, pre this Man City era that we're seeing now, in terms of winning regularly, you know, so it, it, I'm not sitting here to, to sort of condemn the, the, the tactics of, of how they chose managers. We had great managers, but great managers who lost their job and some I saw there for six months. So that was a little bit my thinking, but I thought from, I was thinking more about my situation and, and as I kind of touched on the fact that I'd been at Derby, the fact that probably with a transfer ban, the reality was that probably a lot of managers that may have maybe taken that job probably looked at the job at the time and went, transfer ban, I'm not sure this is the timing for it. And then, it, you know, the, the stars align, I get the job. But my feeling was that it wasn't, I didn't ever have a feeling that it was going to be a long-term job because I understand the pressures of these jobs, um, particularly Chelsea. It's a, it's a very tough job because as managers, you all know that there's always process. And with a transfer ban and young players, there'll be real process and hard work and, and, and improvement to be made. And at times you don't get that, that time unless you really feel you, you have the support that understands what you're gonna go through there. And, I, and, I, and I'm not sure there was a huge appetite to go through that tough period, but who, who am I to say, because I don't want this to sound like I'm being um, negative after the event because I, I, I lose my job. Thomas Tuchel comes in, they win the Champions League, people can see that success. For me, that's all fine. You know, my, part, my part in it was probably making the Champions League in that first year, trying to help develop those younger players. And then Chelsea is bigger than all of us and moves on. And, and I, as I say, I, I then go into a period of having a year with my family, having a son that I could be around for much more than I had been my previous children, um, and then coming to a great club like Everton with a completely new experience that I never saw coming. So for me, it's all just part of the, part of the journey. When they did win the Champions League, was it, how does it 
I guess, what sort of conversations do you have with the likes of, of Mason, who you, I'm, I'm probably got a very close bond with you because you're not their manager at the time, but he probably sees you as a mentor. So did you speak to him immediately after? What was kind of the chats you had with a few of the Chelsea boys after they won the Champions League? I, I sent them messages um, before and after the game um, because I understand what it's like to play in a Champions League final. I understand the size of it and the nerves and when you win the elation. So... But I didn't want to get too much involved because um, I, I really felt like it wasn't my team anymore. And, uh, and that was the truth. So that input I had or whatever in, in those few individuals was, was, was probably more to do with them. Those individuals, Mason deserves the credit for getting to the Champions League final. Rhys James for probably being man of the match in the final alongside others. You know, so um, I, I just had those personal touches and I just watched the game with a... Uh, a small appreciation of the fact that probably I had my fingerprints on it, but a real understanding that the club had moved on and Thomas Tuchel come in and done a great job and got to a final and beat Manchester City, which is an incredible achievement in a final to beat them. So it was like one of those really. Professionally, I had to be quite balanced about it because, you know, we, we all want to be that man who takes them to those things. Like, you can't um, come away from that fact. But at the same time, my links with Chelsea mean I was there for 13 years and have all these personal links behind the scenes, even with people that work at the club that, that aren't players, that, that delight in winning the Champions League because it's so the ultimate as a club. So I, was, um, I just had some personal touches with the players and uh, their moment to enjoy. Just one last question on Chelsea before we move on to, to Everton. The most viewed video on our YouTube channel is your little blow-up with Klopp on the sideline. Is that right? <laughs> Do you, a bit older, a bit wiser, do you do something differently in that situation? Or do you feel like it was, it was a bit worse because there was no one in the crowd, you could hear what was being said? What's your reflection on that situation a few years on? Um, that's, that's a tough one. I, I've got to be careful to say I would never do it again because I may do it again and you, you can replay this and, and, and show everyone. I, 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 I regret, I regret my wording. Um, I don't regret my passion. I probably regret there were no fans in the stadium to, to drown out the noise because these things do happen and we see them. And I think when we see them, I, th I do. When I see other managers, I appreciate the passion. I also understand the pressures. Now, the reality with that game was that we were fighting to be in the Champions League positions in the last three games or something it was. And Liverpool were on party mode because they were going to get given the Premier League trophy after the game. And... Uh, so it was a it was a it was a pressured game for us, um, and maybe that's how I am, and maybe you just got to control it better at different times. And I've got a lot of respect for Jurgen Klopp, so that's probably after the event. I was a little bit like, you know, it was too much to say to a manager who you 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 respect and go against to, to maybe word it differently. But I kind of stand by my, my passion at the moment that it happened because sort of defending my team, I felt that at the moment. So I, I had a bit of regret the next day because I had to ring my elder daughters. Who were, who were probably one of those viewers of, of your YouTube channel <laughs> and seen it and said, you know, and they were like 15, 16 at the time. So then you realise that you're representing a football club and also you're a, a, a role, role model, but, you know, you have to, 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 to act in, the, in a certain way. And I'd overstepped the line that day. So I Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Regret that side of it. So I've spoken to managers um, who have been sacked in the past and they just explain this weird situation where you're getting emails, you're getting calls every day, non-stop, and then the next day it's just kind of silence. How was it for you in the days and weeks after you left Chelsea? Um, silence is beautiful. Did they complain about that? I, I enjoyed that <laughs> side of it. <laughs> that's... that's uh, it, it's you know it's 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 different you know and, and when you when you sign up for this job, you know, managing coaching, it's going to come to you at some point. Um, there may be some that are, at, that, that are on their own and don't get it, but in the modern day, I think it's going to come from, for most of us. So you have to be aware of that. So when it ha- happens the first time, it's probably tough because um, well, firstly because you have pride and you want to do a job and you get told you're not doing that job. That happens in many walks of life. Um, probably the, the, the public eye part of it is the difficult thing because I actually, my phone went, went on blast for about a week, two or three days of people sending you know, notes of, you know, uh, really sorry or it shouldn't have happened, all these things, and you process them and you end up with 100 messages in your phone that you end up flicking through for the next week or so and trying to get back to certain people. And that period is quite tough because, well, it was tough for me because I don't like sympathy too much. I'm not good with sympathy. I actually prefer people to leave me alone, although I appreciate their, their efforts. So that period was quite tough because I just kind of wanted to be with my family for that, that short period. Um, but then afterwards, I enjoyed the silence. You know, you, you're still wrestling with lots of things about the job, what's next, all things. You know, you have, I'm, a, I'm a thinker, so I go over stuff a lot. Um, but the silence and spending time with my family was something I grew to really enjoy in that period um, because I always felt that I would want to work again and I would work again and then those emails and questions and all those things would start again. So I, I kind of enjoyed that period. I wish I could have got away. It was kind of, we were still in COVID restriction time in England and uh, I probably would have liked to get, because I lived like 500 metres from Stamford Bridge so when I walked my dog you know lots of Chelsea fans would, would give me the sympathy that I don't really like and I, again I really appreciated it but sometimes you just kind of want to get away for a period but time passes you enjoy your family and you get really good perspective on life I, I certainly did I certainly did and uh, it made me a little bit tougher a little bit more, maybe more resilient in certain ways and I think those things are sometimes sent to, to test you and it's just a plan that you're not in control of and that, that was it. You seem a lot more in a philosophical in a good way about you know the approaching to every, approach to everything and the sacking of Chelsea is that something you learn to do after or if you feel like you've always been like this and you've always looked at bigger picture and I mean it feels like you know even when you took the Chelsea job you kind of knew that there was going to mm. be some potential things that went wrong so yeah. have you always been like this or was it the birth of your boy that you said that kind of changed anything? I think I've always been like this. Um, I played for. 20 seasons and a lot of those seasons were sort of like the cutting edge, fortunate enough to be in teams that are challenging for, for big things. So you have like successes and failures all the time. And so you have to find a way to get very balanced about it. And you also have a lot of personal uh, praise and criticism. And um, I probably missed the social media um, era to a degree. The back end of my career, it came in. Uh, what players are getting now is on a different level in terms of um, reaction to everything. 
But at the same time, I got used to that as an England player, as a Chelsea player, West Ham player as a kid. And I think you have to build up a resilience or you, you, you probably don't last. And so I probably took that into my managerial life. Understood probably when you're managing, I think it's even more intense because a lot more responsibility falls on your shoulders. Um, um, and I probably, so I was probably pretty tough to it anyway, but after the Chelsea thing, I think it probably helped me become even more resilient after that and, and more balanced. And you, sometimes you just realise that, like I mentioned, my son being born, you just realise the things that you sort of sacrifice for football and then understand that sometimes you need a bit more better balance in your life to, to maybe help your wife in the kitchen or something. Because I did that quite a bit for, for, for like six months and be with my son and be really present rather than present, but thinking about what team I'm going to pick on the Saturday. So now, of course, I'm back in that situation at Everton, but I try and find a better balance, which is healthy. It's a healthy balance, really. And I think as you probably mature as a manager, I think it's probably one of the things as a younger manager that's hardest to control. You know, not just going to work on all the tactics and player interactions, it's sometimes coming away and giving yourself some free time to be energised to go back in and also be with your family and do those things. So that's probably where I've improved since Chelsea. Was there many offers between Chelsea and Everton? Like, did you know also when there was a moment when you were ready to field calls, were you kind of just sick of doing dishes and laundry and thought, nah, how do you get back on the football yeah. field? Yeah, I was, I was definitely sick of doing that. Um, but there were a couple of options. A couple came pretty quickly after the Chelsea job, which I was pretty sure that I wouldn't take. Um, and then through the year, there were a couple of options. No, nothing to the point where I got right down the line, really, with anything. Um, but, yeah, I think just before Everton, I had another option as well, which I didn't take. And then when Everton came, I was always going to take the job if it was to be offered to me because I'd had a year off. So, personally, I was in a good place to go again. And secondly, the size of the, the, the job at Everton in terms of the history of the club, um, the, the, the fan base of the club, the size of it, the position it was in was a big challenge. Uh, and that was a challenge that I was always really keen. The moment that that job came up and I had the call, that was there. It was like, okay, I, I really want to throw myself into this one and uh, if I get it. And obviously the interview process, you have to be ready, you have to show that you have an understanding of what job you're going to do. So, yeah, it was, uh, that, that was very clear to me that it was, uh, it was the opportunity I wanted. So I read that interview you spoke to, Bill Kenwright, Mashiri and Tim Cahill. In that chat, what was it that you think, uh, what was it about you that impressed them the most? I know. <laughs> Have they ever told you? No, no not really. I mean, um, no, no, they haven't told me as such. I, I was pretty thorough in my, my thought process. I'd, I'd had a good look at Everton, close up, once I understood that I'd have a potential of getting the job. I had my experiences now at Chelsea and Derby. I knew kind of how I wanted to play, but the, it's not as simple as that because when you come into a job where a team is um, fighting relegation, is a reality. Um, your perfect plan of football philosophy that you learned three years ago on the coaching course is it's not necessarily going to work. You have to kind of go, okay, what's in front of me? What's the compromises? What will be the benefits? And really get proactive with what's going to help right now. So I tried to put that forward and be honest um, with what I thought I could do. Um, I think it's important with a club like Everton, I got a real sense straight away that it was very much a sort of people's club. It had this unique style to it that's, that, that demands that if you're going to do it, you better buy into everything, not just on the pitch and how you can do it. You have to buy into this, what the fans want and demand. Um, and it can be a real positive if you get that bit right. That was my sense. Um, so I, I spoke probably about football and philosophy, about things on and off the pitch. Um, and 
clearly I, I did I did enough to get the job. And what was going through your mind when Vita Pereira was going around doing interviews with Sky and you know I think you both potentially had interviewed for the job. What was going through your mind when that was all happening? The banners were outside Goodison saying Lampard in, no Pereira. Yeah, like. I mean, uh, I, I, was, I was a bit balanced about it because it was sort of out of my control. All I could control was trying to put forward a, a, a case to, to, to get the job. Um, you know, the, the football world is a difficult one when you're not in, in the seat, you don't know what might pan out. I was watching Sky News, Sky Sports News at home and seeing all these things and some of them were nice because it felt like the fans were, were, were there for me, but I didn't just want that. I wanted to be able to go in and do a good job and I had to prove that to the people that really matter at the club. So I think it's normal. I don't think a club like Everton comes up in the position that we're in and, and the, the ownership are not going to look at different ideas of how they're you know, going to stay in the Premier League and improve and have a long-term plan or whatever the vision is. So it was, it was, I didn't expect a clear run at it. So it was more get my head down and try and put forward the best case and um, see if I get the job. When you took over, I remember there was a, a decent run in the cup. There were some good wins, but there were still some you know, losses there as well. And I think after the Burnley game where you lost 3-2 coming from behind, it was kind of like a, a oh shit moment because mm. um, that obviously caught up. Do you, were you on the case that we're in a relegation battle from the start? Did it change as the matches kind of game on? Was that match a turning point at all? Or what was the feeling from when you took over to, I guess, that Burnley game full time when you've just, you've lost the game you really should have won? Um, I, I was aware at the time, uh, I, I was very aware as I, as I came to Everton that, the, that it was going to be a tough fight to stay in the Premier League. I think um, the run of form had been tough when I came in. That's why the managers change, you know, it's just the reality of what it is. Um, and so you want to get in the building and feel what's wrong or what the solutions might be. And I felt a, a, I felt, um, a drop in confidence that, that comes with tough results. So the first thing was really obvious to me to try and build that confidence. But when I look back now, I could see that it was a club that was, or a squad that were kind of struggling along, you know. So um, I wanted to try and extract the good things out of that. and. I think the proof of it really and the reality of it was that we had, you know, I started, we won a good cup game against Brentford, we won 4-1, four, four then we lost two league games away from home, then we had a good result at Leeds at home. So there were these up and down moments that you talk about um, and some of them were like, were really positive and you have a, a, you know, that glimmer of light, everybody, and then other ones are probably, you lose games and when we were losing games pretty well, as in badly, um, that really pointed towards the confidence of the team. You can see one or two away from home, you end up conceding three or four. And those are not things that you sometimes, I think you can, can actually resolve overnight. So then it became very practical for me. How do we get results with the squad that we've got, some of the injuries that we had, you no know, Calvert-Lewin, um, putting things together, midfield we had some issues, conceding certain types of goals. Um, and so it was real short-term thinking. And within that period, you better be really tough in terms of the ups and downs because you as a manager have to be the first one that comes away from Burnley when you feel really bad about it um, and lift the players on Thursday morning because it's Man United on Saturday 12.30am. So I, uh, it, was, it was an up and down period. It was really challenging in a good way um, for me as a coach and for my staff because we had to find ways to win games that I'd never had to at Derby or Chelsea before in a different style, different way. And a lot of credit goes to the squad of players for the fight and desire that they showed right through to the end. Um, and a lot of credit goes to the, to the fans because they pulled us through in a massive way. We had 
a really unique thing that was happening at Goodison every other week when they, they, they got their three hours early and were, you know, in their thousands and, you know, giving us this incredible welcome, which was lift, lifting the players completely. And it showed you how strong this club can be when everything's aligned and unified. There are lots of things we need to improve on in terms of the football side. Can we be better? Can we recruit well? Can we do all these things? So we're not in that position again. But in that period of time, we needed the fans and they absolutely turned up for us. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the word alignment. I heard you talk about that, about how you feel when things aren't aligned. Do you, how do you f compare the alignment now at Everton to when you first took over? Because there's been change, director of football's changed, different staff. Is it close to where you want to be? Um, I think we're working towards it. Um, Kevin Thelwell's coming as director of football has been has been great for me because he we have a real strategy and, a, and, a, and an idea of where we want to get to. And when you when I work with Kevin, we work. Kevin's in every day with me, so we're analysing the, the the academy, which is more Kevin's job. I'm analysing the first team, but we're analysing. How can we get better on the training pitch? How can we get better with the squad, with recruitment, balance the squad? You know, typical things, some players will move on, some players will come in. What kind of profile of player, what kind of profile of person? Um, and it's really important that that is aligned. And because I think, because we work so closely every, every day, we see a lot of things. It's typical in football management and, you know, everyone's very, very due to their opinion in, in football. But sometimes you work through the week, you see something in the week that completely did, did decides on your selection for the weekend, players training well, showing good character, showing these things. And there will always be different opinions about that. And I think what we have to be aligned on is the idea of where we want to get to. And from where we, where we are and where we were at the back end of last year, the Crystal Palace game, the adulation of, of standing in the Premier League, I was very quickly back down to, OK, well, how do we not get here again? And the process is going to be tough. It's, uh, the Premier League is tough. Everybody improves year on year. If you look at the Premier League this year, I think there's not a, there doesn't seem to be a team that we've seen previously that maybe don't really get off, get out of the blocks, and then they, they sort of don't get like Norwich maybe last year, for instance, that were kind of struggled through, and then now there's a lot of teams there with squads that are competing. It's really close from from bottom to middle, so there are a lot of challenges for us going forward, and I think the the aligned thing is that. We have to be aligned. So when we win and we beat Crystal Palace three weeks ago and everyone's cheering and it's going to be the new beginning, my first job is the understanding that it's not. And when we lose and everyone wants to talk about the negatives, my first job has to be to keep working because you knew that that game might come. And that's kind of where we're at at the moment. Yeah, so even just want to go back to the Crystal Palace game last year, the final game of the season, because after the Burnley loss, you'd beaten United, you'd beaten Leicester, I think it was Chelsea as well. The only loss I think came, might have come to Liverpool. So there's some amazing results, but then there's draws at Burnley, I think losses to Burnley, losses to draw to Watford. Drew at Watford. Drew to Watford, and it's kind of like, oh no, hang on. Lost Everton, to Brentford. Lost to Brentford, yeah, that was, the, I remember, a red card at the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's kind of like, okay, gets to Palace, still in a relegation scrap, 2 0 down at half time. You've got minutes, seconds to think about what you want to say to the players. Mm. What was, what happened between that whistle going at half time and you walking into the tunnel just through your head with your staff? Walk me through that. Well, I started planning my, my, my decisions and my talk about 40 minutes because we were 2 0 down. I changed the system then in game because we had five at the back and we're getting outnumbered in midfield. And um, my my idea was to keep this tactics talk as simple as possible, 
because the, the way of turning the game around was never going to be about the tactics at that point. We were going to be 4-3-3. I was going to bring Delhi into the team. But it was only going to be the, uh, the emotion and character of the team to engage the fans, to do something special. And that's all I told them. The rest is theirs. The rest was up to them. Um, we knew that one goal would change the whole feeling in the stadium. And we got it just at the right time. Um, and then what happens at Goodison sometimes is there's some magic that can happen. And it, and it happened. And it's not easy to be a, a, a constant optimist on the line because football can, as soon as you get optimistic, it can kill you. Like you can get to 2 1 and they go and get third and you go, we're, we're done here. But at 2 1, when we pulled it back to 2 1, there was a real strong sense in my mind that we, we had a lot to give. And then it was all the players the, and the fans together. It was an incredible night. Did the passion of the Everton support and how just positive they were throughout the whole thing and then, you, like you mentioned, the atmosphere at Goodison. Was it surprising? No, no, I think it was... Um, uh, it wasn't surprising because the club's fan base are really passionate and they want... It, football, football is their life, coming to Everton and to Goodison and performing in the Premier League is their life. We've been in the Premier League so many years in the top league of English football. That the idea of that, uh, of getting relegated, what that would do to the fans, to the to the people that work at the club, to everybody, um, was such a big deal that I think the fans reacted, and um, the players have to help them react. Players have to show spirit because it can't be it's a two-way thing. You know, they have to show spirit. The fans will react to that, um, and the Palace game was a great example of when players come out fighting and fans get together, what they can do, and at Everton. We absolutely are that club, um, and that's why it's important as we move forward that we always try and um, understand that and hang on to that because football will give you tough times, and sometimes we need the fans at that point. Um, but also our responsibility is to is to, to fight, and I think in the running of those games against Chelsea, Manchester United, and Leicester that you mentioned, the players really fought, and the fans just reacted to it. Yeah. So you think it was a case of the fans reacting to the players, or the, f the players reacting to the fans? I, I think to be fair with this one. There was, uh, there was a certain game where the, uh, the fans, the, the first time the fans come and gave us a great welcome, I think it was Chelsea actually. They'd, they'd been really good in the build up anyway. We'd had some games where they, were, they knew we were in some trouble. And, but when Chelsea came, it was off the back of the, uh, the Burnley winning at Watford, which meant we were five points shy of the relegation zone, zone. We had two games in hand. But if we didn't beat Chelsea that day, it would have been a tough period. Um, and the fans came in their numbers, in their thousands before the game. So this is one where I think the fans started the action and the players carried it on. Those 10, 15, 20 minutes on the pitch at the end of the game were as spectacular as I've had in football because of the, some of it was relief for sure, but it was a coming together of, of, a, of a great football club in my opinion. So I've heard a few players speak, I mean, Connor Cody said it recently, Seamus Coleman about just, this is Everton. And like, this, there's just an emphasis on this is Everton. And I remember you grabbed Seamus in the dressing room before, after the game and there's that video that went everywhere. A lot of funny memes made out of it. I don't know if you've seen yeah. <laughs> Meeting a random on a night out. There's <laughs> I think that was probably the best. Um, is that something you think the players have taken upon themselves to, to drive in the media? Or is it something that you and your staff push? What's this, this is Everton, this deserves better, this club deserves better? What, like, what is that to you? There's two parts to that. I think the first part is that when we say it, we, we're lucky enough to work at a great training ground and, a, and at a great stadium that's so much history oozing out of the walls that you walk around and you see pictures of Howard Kendall and Alan Ball and great players over the, the generations at, at Everton that have achieved a lot, won Premier Leagues, 
um, like one leagues, one had lots of success in, in, in its years. So, and then there's this feeling I keep talking about with the fan base and the passion of the people that it's a really um, tight-knit community club. And I think when you have those two things, the history and that tight-knit community, you have to understand what it's about. And that's the kind of this is Everton thing because a lot of it comes down to sort of work ethic and passion and feeling about playing for Everton. It's, it's important that the fans see that someone who cares and plays for Everton, not someone who's passing through to go somewhere else. So I think that's the gist that I try and push and I think the players then take on board and you talk about Seamus and Connor, they're, they're perfect messages, messengers for that because that's how they are and they transmit that. The other side to it, the flip side of it is that it's not something that should be said casually like this is Everton and so we deserve anything for it because it doesn't work that way. So as much as you relate to the history of players and go, yeah, this is what we want to achieve, look at that and can we get back to those days? The other part of it is not to sort of say, oh, yeah, that's just going to come and that's what we deserve, deserve. Because in modern football, nothing's deserved because you can go, well, this is Manchester City. This is Liverpool. Everyone has their version of it. And you have to get things right behind the scenes to, to be able to recreate that. So it's a, it's a great idea. It's a great motto. It's great the players say it and believe it. And when they really perform and show it, it's really easy to see. But there are times when it has to be from every detail from the bottom, it has to be that what, this is Everton now. And it might look different to what it looked 25 years ago. So we're probably trying to find that. But the basic building blocks will be the same, and I think that's their point when they say that. So I was reading as well that they've changed the tunnel just to make images of... And did you have a say in that when they, when they were yeah. doing that? Yeah, I did. And, you know, there is, there's a lot of good minds and uh, good people at the club that are trying to drive it forward. And I think um, some of those things that are done... I generally have a saying, but it might be someone else's idea. But I thought it was a fantastic idea, and it's important that the players um, understand the club, buy into it. But also, there are things that we can do that really uh, help the players walk through the tunnel when they sense the, you know, some pictures of history and uh, some fan reactions and things like that that, that that make them understand what they're they're working in. And I think a lot of clubs do do that these days, to be honest. And I think it's important that because we're one of the clubs that still remain for the moment in a very historical ground that's seen all these magical moments at different times, that the players use that to their advantage and little things like that are just nice touches that can help. Do you feel, and you talk about, like I feel it comes back to the alignment thing, it, it, do you feel like it is where, it, where you want it to be at this stage? Probably not in the future, but at this stage, do you feel like the alignment is there? Um, oh, I think we've got a lot of work to do with that. I think we've got a lot of work to do because... Um, our position in the table was real last year and our position is real right now. Um, there's, I keep saying there's nothing that can be given to you or deserved in this game. And so to get to where we want to, and I think you know, we want to be amongst the elite, we want to be looking upwards towards European places and these things. It's not the time to say, it's just the time to work towards it. So all the bits, bits in the middle are really important now, more important than ever for us to try and uh, push up to that area because everyone's trying to do the same. So we have to play our part in that. So outside of, I mean, just trying to sign players, what have you tried to improve on at the club? We've, well, definitely the style of play. Um, we want, when I say improve, I think it is to probably move it towards where I want it to be, um, which is a process. And sometimes, again, you have to be pragmatic and say with the players got, the type of squad we got, what will we be good at, what we're we best at, what, what are our weaknesses, what are our strengths. So that's... It's never as simple as it sounds, this philosophy thing in football. Um, it takes time. So in, in that sense, I think we're working a lot on the training ground of short-term get results, long-term improve the style of play. So 
we see some shoots of it, we see some good things some weeks, some weeks we don't see what we want it and then we work again on the training ground. And that's where we're at. So I think that's my, my main job is to work um, on the training pitch. Because for me, that's 80% that's of my job. Um, the other parts of my job is to build those relationships with the, with the players, to give them the environment I spoke to at the beginning of the interview, and also to build a relationship with the, the broader club, which is the people who work at Everton outside of playing staff and the fans. That's a huge part of my job. So that's a constant job to try and do that. And the best way to do it is to get results on the pitch. So, yeah, I think... Um Everton's had a lot of successful youth teams and I feel like a lot of the frustration among Everton supporters is that not enough players have come through over the last few years. That's something you did really well at Chelsea. Do you feel that's something that the club can lean on, especially with the financial issues at the moment? Yeah, but it's, it's not as simple as that because you have to have the things in place that mean that the talent's there and that you can bring it into the first-team squad. So we have some players that are on this tour now um, we're playing well in the, the 21s who train well with us and we'll have their time as we go. My job is to try and find the right time to give them opportunities and then to show themselves and then it all works really positively but it's certainly part of the job I think that when Kevin came in at the job as sporting director and myself to, to look at the academy and, and see how we can improve that because the talent has to be there you know we're not here to offer out prizes we're actually here to give a service of coaching young talent, recruiting it well, and then as, as, as for young boys in this case, um, and helping Evans first team at the end of the day. And that's a big process. You know, the things you talk about at Chelsea, I could bring people like Mason Mount and Tamori and Reese James into the team because of the work, work Neil Bath, who's a Chelsea Academy director, did 20 years ago when they were under eights. You know, so some of that process is not easy. So what, I guess, do you enjoy most about coaching? Are you an X's and O's sort of person? Are you someone who likes the recruitment aspect of it? What do you enjoy most about coaching? Uh, being on the training pitch and preparing for games. I, I, I decided pretty quickly when I wanted to manage that I wanted to coach. Um, I went and watched Pep Guardiola for a few days because of my City connections. I watched Eddie Howe when he was at Bournemouth. I did a lot of, sort of behind-the-scenes studying of asking questions, talking to people who had done the job. Um, and my real feeling was the modern player wants to feel that they're coached by the coach. You know, this older idea of the manager and overseeing and picking the team on a Friday is, for me, is pretty redundant now. You have to be there on the grass with them. You have to be able to stand there with them, talk them through what you want, uh, let them feel your work ethic, let them feel all those things, show emotion in that side of it. And that's my favourite bit, because if you do that and then you get improvement or you get a result at the end of the week, you really feel like you, you've done your job. So some of the things around the job I don't love, some of the meetings you sit through and, you know, organising uh, this, what this trip looked like, how many meal times we have and these things, you know, like that's, those things are sometimes for other people to, you know, and that's why you, you, you say delegate, you know, that's why you have staff and people that are, that are better at different things than you are, which there are a lot of things that I'm, I'm not brilliant at. Um, but my job, I think, is to be the first one that's on the pitch taking responsibility for the coaching side of it, and I, lo I love that side of it. This doesn't have to be football-related, just be life, but what's something you're doing now that you weren't doing when you were managing Chelsea? Oh, um, I'm probably... I'll tell you what I'm doing now, which, uh, whether it's good or bad for my job, I'm actually watching more um, box sets at different times as a, as a break away from football than studying football every moment of my life. And I, didn't say I, did, I wouldn't say I did that always at Chelsea, but certainly in the last six weeks where it was some pressure and tough, I was finding solutions and you'd end up taking it home and working through the night a bit. 
and then you wake up and you go again and it becomes a real you know, tough thing. And I think probably when I talked about life balance earlier, um, because of living you know, I'm in the north of England doing this job and sometimes my wife and family are down south, I do get time on my own. It would be easy to go there all night, every night and just kind of uh, work out the next training schedules and all these things. And you have to do that. Clearly, that's a big part of the job. But I've given myself more balance. So I occasionally give myself uh, my mind a, a break from football more than I did at Chelsea. Cool. So, two more questions. What excites you most? What excites you most about coaching Everton now? The uh, the opportunity and the room for improvement. I think it's a huge club, great tradition, great history. But we're not there now, and that means that there's a lot of work to do, and that means that there is room for improvement. So it's challenging. Don't get me wrong. But if we can see that improvement and give the fans and this club the improvement, then, then I think that, for me, that would be a great honour and something I could be proud of. That's what I'm working towards. I'd like to ask Gary if he thinks like, the publicity he's given young Frank there warrants it. Because, personally, I don't think he's quite good enough yet. He definitely is good enough and he definitely will be good enough. Um, He's 21 years of age. I, I let him go because young Frank's 17, 18, and he's miles in front of him. Well, that ain't really true. That is true. You know, that's my opinion, and that's what I get paid to. I get paid to make judgments on players. I tell you now, you know, you can sit in front of all these people. I tell you, without any shadow of a doubt, there will be no comparison with what Frank Lampard will achieve in football and what Scotty Cannon will achieve in football. But I'm telling you now, and not, and I may be now. I didn't want to say this in front of him, but he will go right to the very top. Right to the very top. Well, there you are. You heard it here first. I, I, feel, I feel very thankful to Harry Redknapp for giving me the opportunity and backing me in that personal, public way. I also feel like there's some bad people out there. Someone to stand there inside that about a 17-year-old kid. You know, there's a grown man, you know, that, the, the, that part of it. But I, I just feel probably that... Um, I speak about this a fair bit because it's so, so many views. Um, I remember it very well because I was, say, 17, and I was really upset with it, really upset afterwards. And, um, but when you talk about resilience and where I'm at now, you know, those are part of the building blocks. Everyone has their version of that in life somehow, whatever that disappointment might be, and that was a pretty public one in a public environment. So I don't think Harry absolutely believed what he was saying. I think it was an, an amazing defence of, of his, I mean, his nephew, but, you know, of a young player at West Ham. I've got big thanks for him. And when I talk about managers and I talk about relationships and trust and belief and all those things, my feelings when I look back at that are just more about the support that Harry gave me. The rest was the work probably that I put in afterwards that managed to get to make that such a good thing to look at now. So I, look, looking back, are you happy that that happened? Um, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to give the, the guy too much credit for, for standing up and saying what he said to me, because I, I, I thought it was out of order. But in terms of my journey a little bit, yeah, maybe like, you know, I'm not that bothered. It's just something nice to look back on and smile now. And I think it's a good one for, for people maybe. People, a lot of people probably look at that video. It's been many, many views and probably laugh at it. But the reality is that that sort of stuff's going on in social media all the time with players these days. And I think that people should maybe check themselves when they talk negatively about people because I remember being very hurt by it. So it's all good saying now I'm much tougher for it. I think the, the reality is that people shouldn't speak that way. But my um, big takeout was Harry defending me and I'm pleased I managed to not be a dud that made, made him sound like he was right at the time. 
hope you enjoyed that in-depth discussion with Frank Lampard. A reminder that the Premier League returns on Boxing Day with Brentford welcoming Tottenham for the first game after the World Cup break. You can catch every match of the Premier League live and exclusive on Optus Sport. The Gagin Pod will return in 2023. We look forward to seeing you then. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.